0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Firewall's Don't Stop Dragons. I am your host, as always, Kerry Parker, and today we have episode 357 for January 1st, 2024. Happy New Year's, everybody. Hope you had a fun and safe and relaxing holiday with your family and friends. But now we are starting a new year. Now, I usually do a New Year's resolution show where I kind of do a look ahead for the year upcoming and give you some ideas of things I think you should try to accomplish in the next year. But before we look ahead to 2024, let's let's look back and savor the best of 2023. Now, I've already done the Best of episode where I look back to the best episodes that I actually aired for the public on last year. But now I want to actually give you a little taste of the bonus podcast. So the patron-only podcast has two aspects to it, depending on what level patron you are. Uh, if you are a castle guard level or above, then you get access to... Uh, Bonus Q&A with uh, all my interview guests. So that is every other podcast, as you know, I do an interview. And so I always keep my guests on for a little extra time and ask them some bonus questions. And sometimes there may be deeper dives into the issue that we were talking about, or maybe some more technical aspects to the to the topic we were discussing. But often I ask questions that are completely unrelated to the main topic, which often results in getting some really interesting stories. Uh, For instance, a lot of times I'll ask about people's origin story, how they got into doing what they're doing, and that always brings up some fun stories. But sometimes I'll just ask them something completely unrelated. Like when Cory Doctorow was on for the bonus content, I asked him about Burning Man because I know he's a big burner and uh, I'd never been. So I was curious uh, about what that experience was like, especially this year with all the rain and stuff. Now, in the weeks where I don't do interviews, in the weeks where I do the news show, the bonus podcast that week, and I do one every week, the bonus podcast that week is for the, uh, my patrons at night, Errant and above. And that is a series that I have come to call Merlin's Musings, and you know, just in the fantasy theme of castles and dragons and whatever, right? So it's just me kind of pontificating on various topics, either they're maybe deeper technical topics, and oftentimes they're just personal stories, or maybe, or maybe kind of a philosophical discussion about something that doesn't really fit in with the regular news format. So for this episode, the best of the bonus podcasts for 2023, I've collected uh, maybe four snippets for you from some of the best uh, interview guests and also one sample of a Merlin's Musings. So let's get right to it. All right, so this first clip is with Josh Corman and he is the founder of a group called I'm the Calvary, which he launched at DEF CON about 10 years ago. And the idea being that we need to bring technologists, including hackers together to help make us better prepared for cyber warfare and and, and things like that, particularly in the area of things that threaten human life like hospitals and public utilities and things for which we couldn't really live without. It was a great interview and if you, by the way, if you haven't listened to any of the original interviews, uh, that go along with these bonus clips i highly recommend you go back and listen to them i've got links in the show notes that'll take you back to all the originally aired episodes from which these bonus clips were taken so i asked josh a couple extra questions here and one of them was should we be trying to preserve the old older technology the pre-internet technology the stuff that doesn't require being connected to the web or the cloud to work in case the power goes out <laughs> or in case we need to fall back to something and then I asked him something I've always wanted to ask, and that is do we ever lean on science fiction authors to come up with some of these tabletop exercises where we want to try to plan for the worst case scenarios? So here's what Josh told me.
1: We just had a piece done of our Cybermed Summit, it's a 501c3 we own. It does ER hacking simulations and public policy discussions and training and education on multi-stakeholder approaches to cyber resilience for hospitals, stuff like that. We just had ABC do a seven-minute primetime piece on some of it. And what I thought was really nice about it is, you know, I've mentioned some of the analysis my task force did on protracted ransomware attacks that can can stress a, a community enough to to precipitate excess deaths. Um, so we know that ransoms can degrade into late care enough to contribute to loss of life. But what they did is they also, they didn't just look at our ER hacking simulation and some of our content, speeches and trends. They also went to the university of Vermont medical center and they talked to the CEO physician. Hmm. They talked to a patient who needed time sensitive cancer treatment during, yeah. and thank goodness survived, but it was harrowing. And um, you know, what, one of the things that we, No, i'd encourage you to watch the seven minute clip if i remember to give it to you but um one of the reasons we started doing these crisis simulations these lightweight tabletops is that there are some really bad assumptions about how resilient we'll be if we just fail the paper records or if we just do this or if we just do that and they do have documented downtime procedures but that's usually for scheduled maintenance it's usually for a certain assumption of duration but once you exceed that duration things start getting really bad really really quickly and one of the things we try to encourage, whether it's through CyberMed Summit, through I Am the Cavalry, through my government work, and even a bunch of public policy that's coming, is the importance of tabletop crisis simulations and rehearsals. Because we tell our kids in schools, like, we want to do fire drills, so you know, what to do in case of a fire. Why don't we do the same things here? Mm. And to quote the late, great hacker, Dan Kaminsky... Of all the things that hackers uh, break and smash, perhaps one of the most important is assumptions. Hmm. And what we have found is when we did our very first CyberMed Summit tabletop crisis, we locked up the building automation system and the EMR electronic medical records. And we figured, all right, in round one, they'll be inconvenienced. In round two, we're going to do the same thing to the hospitals across towns. So they couldn't divert ambulances to the next facility. And in round three, we're going to introduce a bombing at the Arizona Diamondbacks game. So, so you have an elevated need with a diminished capacity, right? You, at some point they would do what's called crisis standards of care declaration, where you save the savable, not, not the most hurt, but the savable rationing care. And they declared it in round one and we're like, what? And like, yeah, basically we were in Arizona. It was 116 degrees an all glass building. And you have about 45 minutes to evacuate if the air conditioning isn't working. Oh my God. We're like, wow. So all the air refrigeration <laughs> wow. <is> not hospitable. <laughs> But even if they can get auxiliary AC because they had some window units, we said, Well, can we buy ourselves some time? Turns out you can't do surgeries because no elevators means no surgeries because all the surgeries are on the higher floors. Oh, wow. Like, okay, that's new. But the really big shocker, really big shocker was the chief medical officer says, Okay, let's fail over to paper records. We've trained for this. And his uh his uh deputy says, Sir, we can't do that. And they said, like, What do you mean we can't do that? He's like, Sir, we 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 can't do that. He goes, We pay all the money. I see the trucks come. We have paper records, like shut, shut the hell up. And he starts swearing. And then he's like, he's like, sir, we have them. Our physicians have never seen them. We stopped training people how to do them seven years ago (sighs) and everybody turns white. So that was initially what we would say, but I would update it slightly in that during the pandemic and some of the, the really powerful visuals I've been using for the government, for White House, for CISA is I've shown that the unavailability of technology When you look at a hospital, they say, we spend our money on the three S's, space, supply, and staff. And I would love to show you these graphics sometime. And these are the three S's. So if you gave them another $3 million, they would not buy more security. They would buy more staff, right? More nurses, something like that. Whatever they're short on. Mm. And what we tried to show is, you know what? We're we're smarter now. We we know is that technology is a force multiplier of your staff. So a single neonatal intensive care unit nurse in 1990 could handle one or three babies safely concurrently. Uh, but armed with remote monitoring stations and up to a dozen technologies, they can handle two X, three X, four X, that. Mm. So the unavailability, if if the if the tech is a force multiplier of staff, the unavailability of that tech is a force divider. And what happens is you're now no longer in safe patient to nurse ratios or patient to doctor ratios. And that's really what happened with the lot the baby that lost her life oh, in wow. Alabama ransom and 2019 is that they were ransomed. Their equipment wasn't working on the, before the birth, it, it contributed to problems. And after the birth, uh, it contributed to other problems and ultimately they lost the baby. And, um, but what they never did is reduce the census. So if that force multiplier was gone, they probably should have degraded the number of patients admitted concurrently safely. And, and there's a lot of public policy debates that are going on and that court cases continuing, but it has been a very powerful argument to the White House, to HHS, to Congress, um, that this is not elective anymore. That as the we provide the, the delivery of modern healthcare is increasingly dependent on technology, the technology has to be supportive and subordinate to that um, Hippocratic Oath, you know, kind of thing. So we actually wrote a Hippocratic Oath for Connected Medical Devices. It's at IMThecavalry.org/slash oath. It's just basically the same five things as my five star automotive cyber safety framework, but in medical language and doctors and nurses, they already care about do no harm. They already care about preservation of life, which is they didn't realize how technology had eked into their profession. And now we're starting to help them right size and, and right cost that dependence. And that's why the Patch Act. It's partly why the Patch Act passed is people saw, OK, we get it.
0: So again, though, so is the answer or is, is an answer or an aspect to preparedness for this thing to be able to fall back to pre high tech yeah. whiz bang
1: stuff? Yes. In fact, the Navy is is about eight years ago started teaching their sailors celestial navigation again with sextants in case they couldn't use their technology. And you should increasingly have redundancy alternative backups. And while you mentioned a bunch of science fiction, you failed to mention the best one, which is Battlestar Galactica.
0: Oh, sure. Right. Yeah. The the new one. The only vessel that was able to
1: save the species was the left-connected one.
0: Was there ever tabletop exercises done with science fiction writers? Th- didn't someone say that at one point that the government hired sci-fi writers to, to come up with the worst possible scenarios?
1: I don't know all of them, but I'm privy to at least one project that was going on when I was at the Atlantic Council, a nonprofit think tank born out of NATO and UN. We had this project called The Art of Future Warfare. And it was sometimes painting, sometimes short fiction. And the book I mentioned to you, Ghost Fleet, these projects were run in part by August Cole, who was a non-resident fellow at the time. But one of the really cool events that had a bunch of Pentagon people, West Point people and others also had Max Brooks, the son of Mel Brooks, who wrote World War Z. And the movie is disgusting. For whenever I ask him how he liked the movie. He hated the movie. But his book was like, the it was a UN after action report of the zombie war. And it had nothing to do with zombies. It's that he was hired in to be a a writer early in his career at Saturday Night Live. And he was very happy to be so. And 9-11 happened. And he wanted to write content about it. And they said, no, it's off limits. So he quit. And he went and wrote World War Z because he's like, if we can't talk about these things, we're not going to be prepared for the next one. So he said sometimes the best way to – I'm quoting Neil Gaiman here. But we all had this common kinship. It was sometimes the best way to tell the truth is true fiction. And that's what the Lord of the Rings was. It wasn't about orcs and elves. It was about the horrors coming back from war from trench warfare. He and Tolkien, uh, Tolkien and um, CS Lewis would get drunk together at the pub and just talk about how to use fiction to process their PTS. And Mm. so like these stories, yeah, there's been uh, so ghost fleet is one of those books that's now taught at war colleges um, because they use fictional science five scenarios to do so. And there are war games that are um, happening um, in different places, some classified, some not that absolutely use fiction and or science fiction to be illustrative.
0: This next clip is from an interview with Ernesto Falcone. And he was, and I think still is technically with the EFF, though, I want to make sure I restate his caveat that in this interview, he was representing himself and not the Electronic Frontier Foundation. But in the bonus content for him, he's running for state Senate seat in California, and he's been involved in politics for many, many years. And I asked him a couple things. First of all, I asked him how our campaign finance laws in the United States logistically affect our ability to get things done in Congress. And then I asked him also, being in California, Is it understood by California politicians that much of the work that they do and a lot of the regulations and things that they pass have a much broader impact than just in California? And his answer was very interesting. One of the other issues with campaign finance the way it is now is it's actually a logistical issue. Whether or not you believe that the money is actually buying influence, the amount of time that your representative has to spend out of their day to get money. I mean, especially if you're in like the house in the US house where it's it's only a two year term, you get elected, you're already raising money for your next election, as soon as you're elected. And so you know, you're not doing the work of the people because you're having to spend spend your time getting money for the next campaign. That's completely true. And the
2: you know, I think we only have one AOC and one Katie Porter, Mm -hmm. uh, who, who raised an enormous amount of money just from an internet following. Mm -hmm. and and you know they do the work too but they they probably spend a fraction of their time talking to donors because of just the support they have garnered directly and you could see that in their work product if you look at the you know when you see them go to a hearing he's like god they really got that topic or they really nailed it it's because they have the capacity (laughs) to spend the hours needed to learn i never thought of it that way oh and i I, yeah i mean i because i'm i used to be a staffer so i staffed you know, two members, and the and I've you know, and I've been an advocate and, and lobbyist and for the consumer side for, for a long time, and so the operational window in Congress to really put a fine point at that is right after the election. You've got 12 months to move things that are consequential, contentious, and when you get past that 12 months, once it's, once that first December rolls by and you get into January. February, you start running out of the window because once you get to March and later, especially if there's a primary and, and things like that happening, then all of their time is spent on fundraising and they, the legislators are, are consistently shy on taking on big issues that might drive away certain donors. And, and so the election year, half of the legislative process is usually the least productive because oh. of that. And, you know, and sometimes, you know, and to be frank, from an advocacy standpoint, sometimes that's a good thing, uh, because if it's like if you are able to advocate, you know, take earn it, for example, you know, if you're able to advocate on a bill that's like really radioactive and make it radioactive, then they're just like not really interested in voting on that close to an election hmm. and things that are just more, you know, softball and easy and just generally happy, like spending money on stuff tend to take priority but then the flip side of that is you know really important things like antitrust reform once once the first year passed and we got into the election year the, the year you know months before the midterm it was dead because mm-hmm. now all of the different offices whether they're for antitrust or against antitrust you know they start fundraising from the tech side right, right? and they start right. asking for money and so the at the the give in that sense is well like you know hey you know senator like we're really we're really not happy with this bill, like you know you, words your position, I was like, well, I'm thinking it over, you know but and and in reality, it means you know if you I receive your support i I just won't push for it. you know as a priority for this you know the remainder of the next number of years.
0: You're in a unique position to answer, so I've got to ask it, sure It really seems like the relative importance of state level politics has. Gone way up since you know versus federal in the United States. I think largely because the United at the federal level things are so tight, nothing could get done, we're so divided, and because of places like California, where when you guys enact regulation, it has ripple effects throughout the rest of the 49 states. Yep, and so I'm really curious to know because you know, California economy is so large and because it's so hard to you know make multiple versions of their product and everyone kind of does what California you know as california goes so the rest of the other states need to go because companies aren't going to yep. make multiple versions of their product yep. do california legislators ever take this into considerations when they're crafting their bills like do they know that they've got that kind yes. of power and 100 percent, all of them know that and all of them do it on purpose and
2: all of them have the it's a source of pride in sacramento and it's a source of pride to to view ourselves as the national legislator and and you know part of that's congress's fault um Mm -hmm. congress (laughs) not doing anything is what's given that momentum but you know i'll take for you know for example from my own work um you know passage of sp822 which was our net neutrality law california's net neutrality law protects internet access users for for everyone who uses any of the big internet companies for all 50 states because they had to adopt the california standard and apply it system-wide so if you're a Comcast user in, you know, Connecticut, uh, you're benefiting from California's net neutrality law today. If you're an ATT user in Texas or in New York, you're you're benefiting from the fact that ATT no longer uh, zero rates HBO max and self you know self preferences their own vertical the verticals um because of California's law. They discontinued all that after we passed it. So yeah, there's there's a clear recognition that the reach of the state is a a capacity to exert national will. And in fact my my own assembly member, um, her name's Buffy Wicks, you know, she was interviewed by New York Times to say explicitly that. And she was asked, are you going to run for Barbara Lee's seat? You know, because she's running for the Senate. And, you know, she's in great position to win that seat. Uh, she, she represents the Oakland area right now. And uh, she said explicitly no, because in California, even though I have term limits and, and only a certain number of years ahead of me, in California, I can I can affect national change. And so, you know, why would I go to a system where I would just be one of 435 people (laughs) and get nothing done um, versus being here? And she's absolutely right.
0: This next clip is one of my absolute favorite from this last year (laughs) and one of my favorite podcasts, maybe ever. And I had the wonderful opportunity to interview two of the OG hackers from the cult of the dead cow. It was Misha, AKA Omega and Luke, AKA death veggie or death vegetable. And they had some amazing stories to tell. If you haven't heard that original podcast, absolutely go back and listen to the whole thing. Uh, But for the bonus content, I got some other great stories. And this is about a a classic hacker named Agent Steel. And that is spelled S-T-E-A-L. So anyway, just, just listen to this story. It's hilarious. All right, you've you've mentioned this guy multiple times now. Give me the quick take. What, who, what's Agent Steele?
3: His real name was Justin Peterson. He was he was a hacker and phone freak who legitimately had done these things. Up basically, his what he got sort of famous for in the hacker community is he would win radio station co- contests because <laughs> yeah. basically, you know, it's like the fourth color yep. will win this, and basically, he had, he. Had, cracked the phone system and so he could always be caller number four or 14 or whatever so he won trips he won money he won a car um and then eventually he was arrested and he turned state's evidence and um so he became an informant and nobody knew that but it was only years later and then eventually he he also he couldn't stop he couldn't (laughs) stop breaking the law so even as an informant he got busted again and (laughs) there's a funny thing like so he was an amputee he only had one leg he had, a, he had a false leg um and when he was busted the second time there was a new news article it was like you know hacker hacker arrested you know he was he was apprehended after a brief foot chase and so i was like <laughs> i would hope it would be brief probably exactly as long as it took the social social the secret service agent to stop laughing and it's Like, somebody go get him kind of a thing
0: that um, yeah, that made me think about it. What we were talking about movies uh, and pop culture. What you I mean to me for social engineering? I really like uh, Catch Me If You Can. Oh, you well, know, that is a great yeah, Right? Yep. Yeah,
4: yeah. yeah. Uh, th- talking about movies for a second. Uh, so, all the fantastic things that that are attributed to hackers in really sensationalist movies. Agent Steele actually did those things, many of those things, <laughs> huh. and lived that. So. Huh. On that one hand, well. I mean, he was well, a real
3: I, hacker. He, you know. He, he
4: was. He was. Yeah. So on the one hand, while Luke and I can, can, you know, deride a bunch of, of silly hacker movies as being, you know, not, not realistic and, and lowest common denominator, a lot of the things that he did were, were real, right? So like, for instance, he, uh, you know, as, as Luke alluded to, he basically hijacked the incoming trunks to K Rock radio station in los angeles in the late 80s um, because they were having a win a porsche contest so every every friday for four fridays caller number whatever could win a porsche and so he and three other people um engineered uh this hack so that basically they they took over the incoming trunks to k rock and counted the number so you know the radio host would say okay if your caller number 101 you get the whatever right so they they basically counted the number of calls going by and uh you know when it got close to let's say 100 101 when it got to like 90 they would shunt all those calls off and then um they would basically they were the only ones who could call the the in the sure. inbound number and they would just you know call and then and then the Rock would say oh you're your caller number 91 oh okay hang up and then pass the phone to your friend he calls oh you're number 92 Hang up pass the phone to another friend, you know, until until one of them got to 101, let's say, because right? there's
3: no and caller then, ID. It's not like right, they knew who's calling in. Right,
4: right, right, and so and that and so they they essentially rigged this contest, and and they and they won four of these Porsches. In fact, uh, uh, Agent Steele uh, gave chase to the authorities in one of these Porsches. <laughs> <laughs> um, he was literally on the run from them, uh, driving driving one of these Porsches. But oh, that is a
0: classic yeah, story. He, he has
4: yeah. he's passed away. He so he, he he passed away in the it's kind early, of early two thousands. I think
3: feel okay talking about him to some right, extent. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
4: yeah.
0: AI has been in the news all over the place this last year, and so I looked really hard to find an AI expert that I could bring on the show to try to demystify and debunk and explain what's really going on with like chat GPT and some of these deep fake AI algorithms that are generating very, very believable audio and video clips. But the other thing that kinda has come up because of all of this is this notion of artificial general intelligence. And all these AI experts getting together saying, oh, this is super dangerous stuff, we gotta be really careful. And people worrying that Skynet is going to start happening. You know, we're going, the computers are going to take over. Not only are they going to take our jobs, but, you know, we are going to become the pets of these supercomputers and these super intelligent beings. And so in the bonus content with my interview with Michael Littman, who is an AI expert, uh, I asked him some questions around artificial general intelligence and how likely he think that's going to be. And here's what he had to say.
5: Yeah, all these things are there's there's subtle subtle semantic distinctions that you can make between all these things. But but for me, I was motivated by the the what we refer to in the field sometimes as the AI problem. So the AI problem is basically making a thing that's smart like people, that it's it's um it's 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 like us. You can have a conversation with it, and you can uh, teach it things, and and it's just it's people like. Uh, because if we crack that, then maybe we'd have some understanding of what it means to be people like. Which, now, are you just talking the Turing test or are you talking something else? I'm talking something else. I think the Turing test was, was a concrete suggestion on how you could actually assess whether something had solved the AI problem. And this was in, yeah, invented back in the 50s by Alan Turing. And it was basically, can it fool you? Mm. And so people now talk about how that was a terrible thing because now AI is about deception. But I don't think that's. I don't think he intended it that way. And I don't think that anybody really took it that way. It was really just we need a concrete way of saying, yeah, it's, it's, it's smart like us. And it was smart like us if it could pass for one of us, right? It could do the same kinds of things that we could do. Now, you could argue that that was always a bad idea. And we should never have been trying to make machines that are like us. We should be trying to make machines that complement us and can do the things that we're not good at so that together we can do better things. But the fact of the matter is I think a lot of people are drawn to it because it's a way of, of concretely understanding us, right? It's not that we want to replace us. It's that we want to understand the us that we have. And there's no better way of understanding something than to make it right. It's, it's a deep, you get a much deeper story about the thing that you made because you know what you put into it and you know, what's creating the the behaviors that you're actually seeing. And so to me, that AI problem was going to be that, that we were going to make a program that was like people like, and then we're like, ha, we did that. That's one of the great mysteries of the world. So, um, That doesn't mean it's super intelligent, right? It doesn't mean that it actually can do things better than us. In fact, it may do things exactly the same as us. In fact, the more like us, the better. Mm. That was always how I kind of framed the goal. I now do have doubts as to whether that I should have ever been my goal because now (sighs) what we're seeing are these systems that are a little bit scary because to the extent that you can have a person – like thing that's not a person and therefore can't push back the way that a person would push back if you ask it to do something terrible, because like just following orders is actually exactly what Mm. it's built to do. Mm -hmm. It's not something you have to convince it to do. Maybe that was, maybe that was a bad idea because in the hands of people who aren't, aren't well-intentioned, that's a problem. And so I, now I grapple with that a lot more than I, I probably should have grappled earlier with it. I get
0: some of these things mixed up, but I think one of Kurzweil's things was that the 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 trick is going to be when they get to the point where they can program them and improve themselves. Yeah, that's then then it takes off, right? Because at that point they could do things much faster than we can, and then and then they get,
5: you know. So that's okay. So so you can have super intelligence in a bunch of different ways. It could be that it could be, for all we know, the next you know ChatGPT five is actually smarter than all people put together. We don't know, and so but the the Kurzweil story and the singularity story says we've been designing computer chips that get faster every year and a half. Like they double in speed every year and a half. That's is less law. true now. But back when Kurtz right. was, was writing this Moore's law was, was very much in force. And the realization that people had is that, okay, if at some point we reach the level, the, 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 the time course of computation that a brain can do, maybe we can just put the brain in the system itself, then have the brain do what we do, which is figure out how to make the next generation of chips twice as fast. But it's running on those chips, so it itself is getting twice as fast. So now the the what used to be a year and a half for things to double starts to have and then have and then have again, and then in a finite amount of time, you actually reach infinite computation. That is a mathematically that's called a singularity. You basically, it's a divide by zero error, mm-hmm. and um, everything right, all rules like everything is different at that point because you have infinite computation for free. I don't think that's a real thing. <laughs> mm. Like, first of all, I think Moore's law already ignores the fact that each generation of chips that was twice as fast cost twice as much to develop, mm. and there's a limit to that. You can't double an infinite number of times because you know world GDP is a thing. Right? Like, there's just not enough wealth to to do the next doubling. So that wasn't going to be a thing. The idea that you could just put a brain into software and then it'll it'll be able to do what people, like the reason that it was taking a year and a half to, to get computer speeds to double wasn't just thought time, right? Part of it was actually physically building the plants. And, and, you know, there was some thoughts that you had to do in terms of coming up with a miniaturization process and so forth. Right. But then some of that required physical experiments to, to discover, okay, is this a way to make it so that you still have a reliable imprinting of the chips and so forth so that wasn't going to speed up and then it turns out moore's law was not going to hold for infinitely long and right. we're already seeing us we were tailing off of moore's law now so yeah I don't, the singularity always seemed a little suspicious to me and now we're really seeing that that prediction breaking down well and i i didn't
0: get a chance to talk about that open letter that was signed on by many many people and it was a very short statement but the unfortunate part of the statement was something about AI extinction and we should be treating this as you know all, with climate change and all these global concerns we should you know be addressing this but of course every journalist you know latched on to the extinction part yeah um, but a more cynical view of that that I'd heard because at the Part of these things is calling for a moratorium on these things, and you know, like, hey, we better let let's stop advancements of AI until we can address some of these potential ethical issues. <laughs> what I've heard many people, many pundits say was, no, no, this was uh, Elon Musk and some of these guys trying to get everybody to stop working so they could catch up or things and things like that. It was a much more cynical view of of, of some of these moratoriums <laughs> that have been uh, introduced. Are all these machinations? Is this? Are we just overthinking this? Are are these? Are there really these sorts of machinations going on for this
5: potentially very valuable technology? Oh, yes. Amazing. (laughs) So. Yeah. So, so I think all these things are very likely true. There are people, okay. So the two letters that you're talking about, one is the, the, the six month moratorium on training ever larger language models, right? Because that arms race that I mentioned before being kind of nervous about, like a lot of other people were nervous too. And that it was an unhealthy dynamic where they were, they just wanted to be the one to, to give the next bigger number. And they weren't really paying attention to what the systems themselves were doing and how they might be misused. And so I, I was kind of, I didn't sign that letter because The way that they framed it was very much about, and then who knows, it'll all become intelligent and kill us all. Mm -hmm. Like, so I didn't, I didn't want to be a part of that messaging, but Mm -hmm. the idea that we should all just like take a breath, I was on board with that. And it's maybe arguably sort of happening, Like There, there, there hasn't been the, the next announcement where it's the models next bigger than the one that was before. So, um... I'm pretty pretty comfortable with how that went. But I think some of the people who are signing on to these letters. Oh, and the other letter was as you said, uh like we should be investing more in in AI extinction can, uh planning mm-hmm. <laughs> than than we are today. Th- that's interesting that they say as much as we invest in things like the pandemic and climate change I'm like we deeply underinvest in those things. Mm. So that's not a very high bar. Uh, we may already be investing enough in in uh, the AI space, but but there's people who sign on to that because they really are petrified to their core of this as an outcome that they really are very concerned and and I you know, my heart goes out to those people because they they don't sleep well like they're really mm. they're really very much they're very agitated about this i am certain that some of them are doing it cynically and, and I've heard different cynical stories. One of them is like, we just want, we just want you to be afraid of our technology because we, we get to be the lion tamers, right? We get to be the people yes. who like, we're protecting you from this thing right. that you created, but it's okay. We're protecting you. So, um, I'm certain that there are some people of that attitude, but I don't, but you know, humanity is broad and a lot of people signed onto that letter. And I think there's lots of different motivations.
0: Okay. My last clip. From the best of 2023, I had to pick something from Corey, the Cory Doctor interview because that was so, so fun. And again, this is the kind of stuff I ask in the bonus questions. It has nothing to do with what we talked about in the interview, but I had him right there and so I could ask these other questions that I've been kind of dying to ask Cory Doctorow. And I know he's a big Burning Man guy. He goes to Burning Man every year. I don't know how many years he's done it, but he's done it for a long time And uh, so I have never been and it was in the news this year because there was this massive rainstorm, which never happens uh, at Burning Man at the Black Rock Desert. And this is a very rare thing. So nobody was really prepared for it. So I asked Corey, what is Burning Man like for someone who's never been? Describe it. And then I asked him how it was particular this year with all the rain. And uh, here's his story. All right, Corey. Thanks for hanging on just for a little bit more. Uh, I've got to ask because you're a big Burning Man guy, and what was it like this year? And just kind of tell the audience a little bit. I mean, what's for what? What's a Burning Man uh, virgin called? There's got to be a name for it. I think they just call them virgins. Okay. It's like (laughs) Rocky Horror. I've never, Uh, so I've never been. So tell me, tell us about it. Yeah.
6: Well, Burning Man's great. I mean, it's a lot of work. You know, the the Black Rock Desert has terrible weather, (laughs) just generally different terrible weather. Like last year, it was like 115 degrees with 60 kilometer hour gusting winds with, uh, you know, uh, the the dust of the Black Rock Desert is gypsum dust. It's super alkaline. It gets in your eyes. It stings. It gets in your skin. And, and, you know, the, The whole point of Burning Man, like it's a gathering of like 70 to 80,000 people. There's no commerce, right? Nothing's bought or sold. Nothing is traded. Everything is gifted. And Mm. people really push the boat out to try and find ways to like make something delightful in this very difficult environment. There's a lot of big monumental public art. There's a lot of Tea houses and bars and so on where everything is free, restaurants where everything is free, workshops, speeches. The MIT kids do Ask a Drunk Physicist for two hours every night. <laughs> uh, and, and you know, everything you can imagine is there. Everyone knows about the orgy dome, and that's definitely a thing. But there's also, like, the use solar centering to 3D print uh, freehand objects uh, with the silicate in the um, Playa dust, which you can scoop up and then use a Fresnel lens to to solar center with, right? So there's everything under the sun is there. You know, the, the What, Where, When book, which is the guide to stuff happening on Playa is like 200 pages long for the week-long festival. And it only captures probably 30% of what's actually happening. And most of what you try to do fails and you end up doing something else. So, you know, you're halfway to something and then you're like caught a dust storm and you take shelter in a tea house and the, before you know it you're doing something entirely different
0: now, who and owns so, this who owns this land like how do you is it the it's same place public over here? Land.
6: yeah it's public land it's the black rock oh, desert it's about an hour okay. outside of reno an hour and a half outside of reno uh you basically take a, a main road outside of reno and then you you turn left through um piute reservation land pyramid lake uh and then at the end of it you get to a town called Gerlach which is a population of one which used to <laughs> used to have a uh a gypsum mine um but now doesn't. And uh, there's just this huge BLM owned desert that the festival gets a permit for every year. It's the largest Leave No Trace event in the world. You pack out everything, uh, including the wastewater, because you don't want to get soapy water in the desert because it uh, changes the pH of the... Mm, mm of the dust. And so you capture all the water that you use. If you have a shower in your camp, you shower over something that catches it. You pump it into a barrel, you drive it off the desert. You bring in all your own supplies. One of the, one of the ideas here is radical self-reliance. The only things that the event provides are portas uh, with, you know, toilets and um, you can buy ice. Because they just don't want everyone sure. to have a generator in their camp to make ice. Sure. Uh, and uh, vehicles, uh, motorized vehicles are banned except for mutant cars. So these are like cars that have been modded. So they they cannot be driven on road, huh. and they are in some way delightful and artistic and the maximum speed you're allowed to drive even those at is five miles an hour so how do you and, get in there you, uh, you walk
0: the rest you, walk, you know walk you drive in
6: but then you have to park you're not allowed oh, to see. drive once you've parked yeah and and uh vehicle permits very expensive so a lot of people will club together one person from their camp will drive it in, in a box truck with all the supplies and everyone else will take the bus which is called the burner express And that's how they keep the number of vehicles down to a minimum because it's a two-lane road into the desert, right? So 70,000 people, that's a lot of people to get in and out in individual cars, right? Or RVs or buses or whatever people bring. So, you know, in our camp, we got a couple of of very nice art cars. The one that was out there this year was a a vehicle built uh, by some of my campmates called the LED Zeppelin. There's a lot of stuff at Burning Man that starts as a dad joke and then turns (laughs) into a project. So the LED Zeppelin is a school bus that they have built a giant Zeppelin on top of out of translucent conduit with programmable leds in it oh that's fantastic it's it's got like uh i can't remember how many thousands of watts worth of leds in there but it it, it's like being on the surface of the sun and it's got a it's got a giant sound system and they just play hard rock and you there's a ladder and you go up in uh, to the roof of the bus and you stand inside the zeppelin and you cruise around the desert at five miles an hour so most people are, are are going around on bicycles or on foot Um, e-bikes are also limited to five miles an hour, although that's harder to police and they're running into some troubles with it. My wife, a couple of burns ago was, was run over by someone on an e-bike and that's happened before It, it keeps happening. It's not great. Um, there's a lot of LED light. There's a lot of, um, you know, every it like it's it's you're in the middle of the desert, right? So it's pitch dark at night unless you're lit up, and so everything is lit. Bicycles are lit. People are lit. Um, they're also lit in a, <laughs> right. in a metaphorical <laughs> way very often. There's a lot right. of uh, psychedelics and drinking sure. and whatever. And then you know, obviously, this year the thing happened that um, yeah. everyone hopes won't happen, which is rain. It almost never rains during the summer in the Black Rock Desert. The last time it rained it rained just a little and that was like 13 years ago 10 years ago
0: so was it as bad as the news made it sound
6: so the the rain was very debilitating you know the 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 composition of the playa dust which is which is it's it's uh fossil marine organisms so it's it's super hydrophilic like chalk dust Mm. and when it gets wet It clumps and it sticks to everything. So you it's not just that like riding a bicycle through it would like make scars in the desert. It would the bicycle wheels would turn into like comedy, like three foot thick mud balls within, you know, a hundred yards, right? Same with motorized vehicles. We you need like um, you know, four by fours with all-wheel tires to get around or ATVs. Like it's not you just can't move in it. Even walking in it is impossible. Your your feet sink in and then collect balls of mud. And the only way to walk in it is either barefoot in socks or with... Um, what we were doing was socks with uh, Ziploc bags duct taped around our feet because otherwise just the mud sticks to it. Wow. And and so the rain was a problem, right? Because it doesn't rain and people aren't really prepared for it, although notionally you're supposed to come prepared for it. Like we have this shelter that's based on an old fishing tent, like a, a fishing tent design, ice fishing tent. And the manufacturer warns you that the floor isn't waterproof and you should put install it on a tarp, mm-hmm. which we did probably for the first couple of years. But after a while, it was like, We're not going to install this on the tarp for the same reason we're not going to, like, put in the polar bear repellent, right? Like, this is just not necessary. So then, you know, like, surprise, surprise, our foam mattress is, like, saturated one night because the rain is coming through. It was, like, two months rain in in a night, right? right? It defied the forecast, so it was much more than was forecast. And it went on much longer, and it kept happening despite the forecast. So it was very hard to plan around.
0: For my last clip, I I went back through my Merlin's musings episodes. And again, these are for my night errants and above. Uh, this is the bonus podcast for the weeks when I'm not doing an interview. So in other words, they're opposite the the news shows. And instead of just doing more news articles, I kind of randomly come up with topics. And these are sometimes technical topics, sometimes they're personal topics, sometimes they're me philosophizing about things, sometimes it's me talking about my history. Uh, it's a software engineer and telling some stories there. They, they vary quite a bit and that's kind of why I called it Merlin's musings. So I could kind of leave it open to interpretation and just kind of go with the flow and whatever I feel like talking about that week. But the clip I'm going to play you now is about a proxy ham. And this is actually, well, you know what? I explain all of this in the episode. So let me just play the episode and then you'll hear it. This is the Merlin's musings as you would have heard it if you were a patron. Hello, my patrons. Welcome to your Merlin's Musings for the week. Uh, I thought this was interesting and I thought this would be a perfect thing for Merlin's Musings and something that didn't really make sense to do on the main show because it's kind of technical, kind of geeky. And I started with a dear carry question and somebody sent me this question kind of blue. I didn't expect it, but it basically just said this. I'll just read it to you. It says, I don't have a lot of experience with network administration. Would you be able to make a step-by-step guide into making a proxy ham? They removed it from DEF CON a few years ago, and I want to know how to make one. So I admit I had to look that up. I had not heard that term, but I'm kind of surprised I hadn't run across this beforehand. But as I'm looking it up, getting ready to look it up, I'm thinking proxy ham. What what would that be? And, and it turns out that it's actually kind of what you think it might be if you think about the term proxy and ham. So the proxy part is it's. It's meant to be a proxy server, sort of. And a proxy server is kind of like a a hop-off point. So if I was using a proxy server, it's sort of like a VPN. Um, But if I log into a proxy server, the proxy terminates my communications there and then reestablishes that communication onto the truly desired endpoint. So it kind of inserts itself as a man in the middle, one that I actually want in this case. Between me and my final destination, because it means that the final destination doesn't see me as the requestor, as the initiator of this conversation, it sees the proxy server instead. So basically, it hides my IP address from the destination by inserting this kind of hop off point in the middle. And you can with, you know, even with encrypted communications, it basically is a terminus. So it uh, I you know, send a request off the proxy server. The proxy server is smart enough to know that it's proxying, so it will then turn around and reestablish a connection to the far end as if it had been the original requester, and then the responses go back to it, and then it turns around and sends a response back to me. So the far end believes that the proxy server is the actual originator, but it's not. So it's hiding my IP address from the, the far end. And that is a technique that can be used similar to a VPN to kind of hide who the originator really is. Now, you know, anybody with access to the proxy server would be able to see both sides of that and figure out who the original originator was. Anyway, okay, so that, that's what a proxy is. And then ham, in this case, is ham radio, which I am not an expert on, though I'd love to become one. Getting my ham radio license is something I've wanted to do for a long, long time. It will happen someday. Anyway, I'm actually not sure if this particular solution uses that, but so I, I looked up Proxyham, and the, there's a whole story behind this. And so one of the better articles I found was from Wired. So let me actually read you this article real quick, which will explain a lot of this. For seeking stealth and anonymity online, a radio device known as a proxy ham was a highly anticipated new tool set to debut at the DEF CON Hacker Conference next month, and this was from 2015. Now it's staged its own disappearing act. Late Friday, the Twitter feed for Rhino Security, the consultancy run by the project's creator Ben Caudill, announced that Caudill's talk was being pulled from the DEF CON lineup and that the proxy ham project was being called off. And this is a message from them, I guess, saying, Effective immediately, we are halting further dev on Proxyham and will not be releasing any further details or source for the device. Existing Proxyham units will be disposed of and no longer made available at DEFCON. Just a couple weeks earlier, Caudill had enthusiastically described Proxyham to Wired as, quote, that last-ditch effort to remain anonymous and keep yourself safe, unquote. The $200 open-source dictionary-sized networking device, which Caudill had said Rhino Security would be selling to DEF CON attendees at cost, used a 900 megahertz radio to connect to an antenna dongle on a computer as far as 2.5 miles away. The result would be that an anonymous user could plant the proxy ham in a library or coffee shop, and then use that location's Wi-Fi via proxy ham's radio connection from the comfort and safety of their home. Any investigator who traced the connection would only find the proxy ham's IP address, not the user's. And another quote from Caudill here, quote, the KGB isn't kicking in your door. They're kicking in the door of the library two and a half miles away, unquote. In a phone call today, Cottle said he couldn't offer any explanation for the project's sudden demise, and that he didn't expect Proxyham to be resurrected anytime soon. Another quote from Cottle, quote, I can't say much, which is unfortunate. It's frustrating for me and for the team as a whole, unquote. Cottle did say that it wasn't DEFCON's choice to cancel his talk. He called the conference organizers Thursday to tell him he couldn't present the research, nor was it his employer who forced him to cancel it. He runs his own company. Over the weekend, some followers of the project speculated that the FCC had barred Caudle from selling the device because it violated laws that control the use of radio spectrum. But Caudill denied that explanation too, saying that Proxyham's radio output remained below one watt, which is the legal limit. And another quote from Caudle: quote, We had no contact or issue with the FCC throughout the project, unquote. In fact, it seems much more likely that Caudle had been issued some sort of a gag order. Did he have a run-in with law enforcement? No comment, Caudill responded. Online anonymity tools certainly aren't illegal. Tools like VPNs have allowed users to obscure their IP addresses for years. The anonymity software Tor is even funded by the U.S. government. But it's possible that secretly planting a proxy ham on someone else's network might be interpreted as unauthorized access under America's draconian and vague Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. If Wired learns more about the project's shutdown or law enforcement action against Proxyham, we'll provide an update here. Cottle himself, meanwhile, isn't offering hints. When One final quote from Cottle. Quote, there's no more information I can provide. It is what it is, unquote. And that was written by Andy Greenberg, who's a security person that I respect. And so I, I found several articles on this all saying the same kind of thing. It was this huge conspiracy theory that, there was this national security letter issued by the NSA or the CIA or something like that that shut this guy down. And at the end of the day, all it really did is make this guy go viral. Like, you know, what's what's cooler than having your talk mysteriously shut down before you could do it at DEFCON, right? I mean, so I don't know. The cynic in me says that it was something simple and this guy just managed to pull off something that made him, you know, that much more... I don't know, get that much more cred in the community. Uh, I have not seen an outcome to this story that ever explained what really happened here. But so let me explain again what this device is. It's like this Raspberry Pi-based device, I think. And actually, I think some Arduinos in there too. Or maybe what what I'm thinking of is actually the Hackaday version. I'll I'll get to that in a minute. But the idea was this device, you plug in somewhere near a public Wi-Fi source. I mean, this could be McDonald's, Starbucks, the library, uh, someplace that's got decent Wi-Fi. And you you hide this thing somewhere nearby so it can get on the Wi-Fi and it's got a little plug. So you got to plug it in somewhere. It's got to have an AZ outlet uh, so it can keep running and you hide it somewhere uh, where it can get on the Wi-Fi. And then you have this other antenna set up at your house or wherever you're stationed and you can kind of point it line of sight toward this device wherever it is that's broadcasting all around it and I guess up to two and a half miles away if you've got line of sight you can get on the internet <laughs> on this other device so that it looks like you are at that site at the library or Starbucks or McDonald's or whatever. Because, you know, all your traffic appears to be coming from this device, but in reality, you're nowhere near there. So if the you're doing something that you think is going to get you busted and the cops come try to find you, you know, they may eventually find this device nestled away somewhere and realize that you are somewhere in a two and a half mile radius of this thing. But you're not sitting there doing whatever it is that they think you shouldn't be doing. So Hackaday, which is a fantastic website, actually spec'd out what one of these things would look like. And I ended up sending a link back to this person who asked me the question to the hackaday article about this. And I'll put a link in the show notes for you as well, if you're really interested, but they, I think looked at his design and replicated it. and and then somebody at some point, I, mean, I think it was like a year later, came up with uh, an even better version of this that used 2g cellular network. So, there's a couple ways you could use this device. One was within, I think, 10 kilometers. Uh, and the other one was anywhere in the world. Because I guess you can get this thing on the on the old 2G network, which by the way, in the United States is not active anymore. So this wouldn't work with a 2G radio. Uh, and I, I don't even get how that would work. Because if it was a cellular network, you'd have to have a cellular account set up for that device. And it's very hard to get an anonymous cell phone account. Uh, I guess it would maybe be like a burner account. And then you'd have to what? Keep putting money on that? Anyway, this is, this is spy stuff, or this is really hardcore privacy person stuff, which, you know, I mean, I think this would be, I personally think this would be a really fun project just to try, but the original proxy ham stuff did have some issues. I mean, if you look at the Hackaday article on this, it says, don't build this, but here, if you wanted to build it, here's how you do it, but don't do it. (laughs) And the article basically says there's a couple things. First of all, I guess I, did, I didn't realize this on ham radio fe- frequencies. These are, you know, all this is licensed spectrum in the United States from the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, and each of those, you know, sections of wireless spectrum have their own sets of rules. And apparently the the stuff in the ham radio spectrum, you're not allowed to encrypt the traffic. And this device did that. So that was the thing. And the other thing it possibly ran afoul of was the broadcast power. And like this article says, I believe that the FCC limit on something that's unlicensed, something you don't have to get approval to manufacture or use without a license, a special license, is under one watt of power. But this other one, if you want to look it up, and I'll put a link in the show notes, was called Proxy Gambit. Uh, which was a, a, a even fancier design for this project. I think it's a really interesting idea, actually. Uh, I, I could see myself looking into something like this in the future. But anyway, I, I just thought it was really kind of fascinating. This person asked me the question uh, for Dear Gary, but I this is one I probably will not cover on the air. So I thought, hey, you know, maybe Merlin's Musings would be a fun time to just talk about this project. So anyway, if you're interested, uh, again, there's links in the show notes. You can check out this project. But I, I thought it was a little interesting kind of bit of history, a little DEFCON history, a little kind of hacker history that I was not aware of. So there you go. There's your Merlin's Musings for this week. So there you have it. There's the best of the bonus episodes from 2023. And it was actually just like it was for the regular best of 2023 episode. It was really hard to go back and pick out just these few snippets. There was a lot of really great content. And just to give you a little bit of an idea of some of the other Merlin's music topics I've covered, like I've talked about how HTTP works. I've talked about how steganography works, how to use PGP, how to find hidden cameras when you're going to an Airbnb. I have episodes where i talked about one-time pads. I talked about a little bit of history of telephony because I was a telephony engineer. As a software engineer, I've worked on telephony most of my career. I also kind of redid some presentations that I did as a software engineer on things like Software craftsmanship, how to conduct a technical interview, soft skills for software engineering, they really run the gamut. But anyway, that's that's just a little taste of what the Merlin's Musings would be. And, this, and the previous clips are a taste of what the bonus content is I get when I have the, the interview guests. And I'm really glad I started doing this. It's for one thing, it gives me a chance to ask even more questions and ask them questions that don't really relate to the topic. But, you know, I've got this really amazing person here that I want to ask them about something else entirely, something else that they would know about. So the bonus content allows me to do that and then pass that on to my patrons as a, as a perk for being a patron. There are actually a lot of perks to being a patron. the The bonus podcast is maybe the one of the bigger ones. The other big one for me, honestly, is our private Discord server. Uh, it's a chat server uh, for my patrons. It's a lot of fun. It, we have some great discussions. I, I personally just really like having the opportunity to have real time or near real time give and take with you guys, my audience. You know, doing a podcast, this is me talking, talking at you. So it's it's nice to hear something back. It's actually nice to have some some back and forth. We talk about technical issues. We can talk about the podcasts. Uh, people can ask me questions, and I often ask for direct feedback. You know, I ask my patrons to give me input on the next edition of the book, or people I should interview for the podcast, or topics I should cover. We trade news articles, some many of which I have actually used in the news shows. My patrons also get sneak peeks at the upcoming show notes. Uh, they get published, uh, you know, two or three days ahead of time before the podcast airs. So you'll get to see what's coming up on the next show. You know, there's a monthly newsletter where I give you some behind the scenes stuff and tell you what's coming up in the next month or two. You know, some of the interviews I've got that I'm working on, or maybe some promotions I've got coming up. I've also started a privacy and security book club, and I, that may sound awfully dry, but I try to pick books that are actually entertaining to read and not just super technical. Like right now we're reading Your Face Belongs to Us from Kashmir Hill, which uh, I just interviewed her recently about. We will definitely be reading a Cory Doctorow book here at some point. We read The Cult of the Dead Cow by Joseph Men. Right around the time I interviewed those guys. We read Sandworm by Andy Greenberg and Click Here to Kill Everybody by Bruce Schneier. The Art of Invisibility by Kevin Mitnick. And I've got a long, long list of candidate books. And I always get feedback. Uh, I mean, I pick the book, but I always ask for some feedback before I do. And for my night errants and above, if you're curious, uh, maybe if you know InfoSec is kind of your thing, I actually also publish a curated list of articles on privacy and security every couple of weeks. Basically, these are all the stories I considered doing for the new show. I mean, I I can't do them all, you know, so there's often 30, 30 plus stories that I evaluate for every news show, and I can only pick, you know, 10 of them. So anyway, if you're interested at all, go to patreon.com and look for Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. And of course, you can find that link conveniently in the show notes. Looking ahead, I'll be doing my New Year's resolution soon. We'll be talking about Data Privacy Week soon. I plan to do some sort of a promotion i'm recording this a little while ago so that those plans might change but i was going to do it in december and uh, i just had too much stuff going on so hopefully i will get that done here in january so there you have everybody welcome to 2024 we got a lot of great stuff coming up ahead if you have not subscribed already now is a great time to do it Uh, if you want to introduce someone else to the podcast this episode and maybe the previous best of episodes would be great ones to share with them and of course, check out the book, check out the blog. Just go to firewalls, It's all there. Take care, everybody. Stay safe. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.